0: Join us as we jump back into the second part of the conversation between Deacon Charlie and Monsignor Eugene Morris. Be sure to check out part one from last week if you missed it. This week, the two talk about diversity in the church and ideas on how to better engage with youth and different ethnic groups within the church. But they're desperately hungry for something deeper, for that transcendence. They want that. I think a lot of times why people are walking away from the practice of any religion is that it doesn't cost them anything. It doesn't require anything from them. To wrap things up, they talk about the permanent diaconate in the church and specifically why most men in this role tend to be much older than the minimum age requirements allow for. This is Living the Call.
1: When we look at young people in the U.S. right now, and I don't know if you already know this, but in 2019, according to the U.S. Census, first time in really modern American history since we've been sort of constituted as a nation that we all sort of can know and recognize, in 2019, more than half of people under 18 were something other than white, European white. So mostly made up of the Latino population, African American, and a huge growth of mixed race um, folks who Mm -hmm. are, you know, some combination of that. And, you know, I, I'm going to kind of quote you to you, because I actually pulled this from uh, um, a, a, a an introduction that you wrote to an anthology, uh-huh. because I, I, I'm curious about, about your thoughts, right? You sure. said there's so few black Catholic priests—this is you writing—and at least to my knowledge, even fewer who are involved in the apostolic work of the traditional mass and sacraments. There have been times when the experience of alienation and loneliness was extremely profound, and I grappled with the specter of racism both from without and within the church— and hostility in the church because of my love and appreciation for the traditional sacraments. With that in the background, and now looking at young people who we want desperately to engage with their faith and kind of, you know, come home, and the numbers are not positive in that regard. But with all of this in the background and with the fact that young people are increasingly from, from these communities, ones that you and I both represent, like, how do you view the idea of, of youth, of engagement with youth, of what we aren't doing, of, or what we maybe are doing, but need to do more of, or, or differently, uh, with, with your own personal experience of being black American, a priest, etc. cetera.
0: Uh, that's a, that's a beautiful question. And, and that might even require us to, to regroup and get together again. Yeah, because, um, so I guess I would say in general, I think what Is interesting to me when I look at my young people. And again, my community um, in some ways is a little bit more diverse than the average community here in the Archdiocese, which would be predominantly white Americans, Euro Americans. Um, um, And I would say that's obviously the dominant in my community as well, but um, it is not at all foreign to my people to have someone who is Hispanic. Uh, I have black folks, I have um, Filipino. uh, I know a couple, couple of families from Korea, a uh, number of families from India, um, and so that's not a that's not a that's not a thing for us necessarily. What I find interesting, so in, in, for my young people is, especially my young adults, is they they they're 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 steeped in the world that has not really served them well, so. Yeah uh they're all they, they get all the tiktok and all that so they know how to use that they use it as ways of coming together but they're desperately hungry um and for something deeper for that transcendence they want that i think a lot of times why people are walking away from the practice of any religion is that it doesn't cost them anything it doesn't require anything from them so this isn't just a question of uh, uh, let's go back to the old mass and that's going to fix everything. No, because we also know statistically, since the motu proprio Benedict XVI's motu proprio, uh, there wasn't this this full flowering, if you will, of you know this massive return to the celebration of the traditional mass. I, I think I read this on one Peter Five. as statistically, it was a very valid point. So it isn't just a question of the the form. I do think that does play a large part in it. I think it's the deep realities. What does Christian – Rod Dreher had a podcast I listened to a couple of years ago. He said that there, there's no content to Christianity anymore. The cross mm. has been emptied. Um, mm. And so for, for, for kids who can make up their whole lives and put them online, they don't want to be engaged in something that seems to be made up or seems to lack any substance. They want that. So I would say that in general, when you start getting into dealing with the communities that we represent, there's, a, there's so much historical baggage that I don't think the church has actually done well talking through that. I don't know sometimes how to wade through that, you know? Mm. Um, so, you know, the alienation and the loneliness about which I've spoken oftentimes has been perpetrated by people who thought they were doing me, a, a, doing me a solid, if you will, by, sure. you know, well, you know, if we send you up to the North side, which is our predominantly black community, you're going to feel at home there. I'm like, well, no, cause you don't know anything about me. You assume because <laughs> you see me, that you know where it's right. from. I said I grew up. Look, as the only black kid anywhere at any time, you know, and that wasn't always the best way. I don't fault my folks for doing what they did. That's what you do. You move on up. If I can quote George and Weezy, but um, uh, don't assume that. And but and give me the chance in that regard to set some of the parameters. And I suspect you've had similar situations as well. So, Oh yeah. So Uh, it it really becomes where the dialogue really has to happen. You have to stop and listen to me. And again, because we have had so much victim status now, legitimate recrimination, legitimate recrimination actually doesn't exist anymore. Meaning there is a conversation where there does need to be legitimate ownership of the damage of racism in the life of the church and how it was perpetrated, there has to be a way to have that conversation that doesn't necessarily then weigh other people down. So I don't want a whole bunch of white people coming to me apologizing to me. <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate yep. it. I, I don't also want them molly me, I don't want them holding my hand. I want to have a yep. conversation about what this is and how all of us have been impacted, whether we are the receivers or, for that matter, I have to own my own pre- prejudices and biases as well. But again, because color especially has always been in some ways the defining dynamic in this country, whether it's black, brown or yellow, if you will, to use those kind of simplistic terms, mm-hmm. um, we, we have to have that conversation. And I think before we would then look at what we would deal with our young people, we have to have that. Because if you say, as you, the you quoted me, um, they're used to a bigger melting pot than we are. They're growing up in it. They're not getting yep. this in the way that we've had to deal with it, so we we got to jump on board very quickly to where kind of where they are. I don't know any of that made sense. So um, no, it,
1: it totally made sense, and I think that the the predominant culture solution to this is also sadly way 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 inefficient and bad, and you know where where really the solution seems to be in the kind of dominant culture the sense of balkanization, really, which yes. is like. Hey, you know, you're black. So you're over here. You're, you're brown. You're over here. And what I talk about all the time is that I I agree in this dialogue that you just articulated. I think you did so beautifully, but everyone needs to feel permission, have permission to actually participate in that dialogue. And what I run into more oftentimes than not, and again, I'm kind of picking on my progressive brothers and sisters here, but I find it more in that end of the spectrum is this sense that, well, I'm not, I'm not Latino in my case, right? I'm not, I'm not Hispanic. So I can't, I can't talk about that. I can't, I can't share any perspectives on this, give you my opinion on this because somehow that appropriates your being Latino and I don't have that shared experience. So I'm going to just stand back and not, not be involved in the conversation. And I think that's a great disservice to the dialogue. And it certainly doesn't feel to me, Catholic, it doesn't feel universal. It doesn't feel Christian, right? To say like, well, I, I, I can't, talk to you about certain things or weigh in on that dialogue simply because I don't belong to that particular group. So we have this like weird balkanization that seems to be the the way that the world is trying to solve it, where just everybody goes into their sort of corner and we all kind of, you know, you know, talk about one another in these ways that like, ah, they'll never get us, they'll never understand us. And I I just don't know how that is anywhere near the starting point for what the conversation actually needs to be.
0: I I would agree. I I think, you know, in the span of You know, the uh, um, March on Washington or the March in Selma and the desire for civil rights and all the implications of that to, you know, 2018, 2019, maybe even 2021 or 20. I don't know. Certainly Harvard or some of the other, you know, Ivy League schools having, you know, uh, black graduations, uh, Latino graduations, whatever it might be, because those groups feel threatened. Okay, so wait a minute. People were dying. So that everybody could sit at the table together. And now the response to that movement is to say, no, let's all go to our separate tables and eat. That categorically cannot be the response. And as you say, unfortunately, it seems uh, more for the progressive. But even I think sometimes seceding the field, if you will, on the more uh, conservative side is just simply saying, no, we're not yeah. going to engage that or um, – there is. I don't understand where they're – I find it more when I'm dealing with conservatives since that's kind of my bailiwick. They don't understand where, they're, where we're coming from. So they'll look yeah. at me and they're like, you know, you're, you're pro-police. I said, I am. And at the exact same time when I see a police car behind me, I'm scared. And yep. it's not lost on me that I could die. I said, and you don't get that. Now, I'm not mad at yep. you, you. You don't get that. But I think that's where we have to have a conversation as to how that I'm I'm okay with it. I'm, I don't want the police to be defunded. I'm grateful for the cops who sit across our parking lot and make sure we're safe. And I know those guys, and they know me. But I've also had experiences. I mean, even my one of my first experiences in the parish, a cop followed me into the garage of the parish where I was the associate pastor. I pulled into the garage, got out of my car, and he's asking me, "What are you doing here?" And I'm like, "Are you serious?" I said, do you know any robbers that have access to the garage? And I mean, and again, I mean, this is before the violence that's often been perpetrated. So I I felt I was okay being a little bit lippy. I was in my house. But, you know, again, now, am I subject to the same type of oppression as others? No. But again, so having said, yeah, but the answer isn't for me to go and simply be with my people Um, because some of my people and you probably have this, don't want me either. Because sure, I am sure. this, or mm-hmm. I believe this, and I'm not on board in the same way that they are, and therefore, uh, you're okay, but you're not that okay, you know? So it's but, kind of...
1: But I, I, I got to ask you, though, on that one, Monsignor, yeah. when you think about, right, there's a huge under-index with black Americans being Catholic relative to the population. It's like yes. 3%, the population's 13% or whatever. And, you know, as much as I don't want to look at things strictly on that basis, it does sadden me... That we don't have anywhere near a representative sample within the Catholic Church in America. I mean, when you look across the world, most Catholics probably are brown and, you know, black and brown. Right. But if you look at it in our own country, that is not the case. And, you know, part of this ties maybe into your own personal story of, you know, y- your own Catholicism. But what, what do you think is at the root of that, say, lack of representation, and I'm using air quotes, of, of black Americans in the Catholic Church?
0: I think there is a historic moment that we lost a great opportunity. So after the Civil War, at the end of the Civil War, Rome, interestingly enough, encouraged uh, kind of super jurisdictional parishes for the freed slaves in much the same way as you see uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, the uh, AME Church, which is predominantly black, but uh, even the Episcopal American, uh, African-Americans, African Methodist Episcopal. The Protestant churches were very comfortable welcoming in the freed slaves even when segregation was real, but they were still Baptist. They didn't worship together, but they could still call themselves Baptist. The Catholic church had that opportunity, had that encouragement. They didn't take advantage of it. Now, some will say it was because of racism, and I do agree that was part of it what we also know historically that was going on, the Civil War ends in what, 1872, 1873. You've got the beginnings of the kind of big Catholic migrations in 1880 and the other one about 1910, 1920. You know, as far as the church was concerned, she was then dealing with this influx of her own people that she had to care for and maybe didn't feel because she was a a, a kind of a, a, a new church herself. She was in a position to both respond to this issue and then respond also dealing with her own people. And then the third part of that is, you know, when the immigrants who were coming who were Catholic, they too were subject to kind of the the racism and prejudice. It seems to be sadly at times part of the the, the fabric of American legacy, um, you know, where Protestants hated Catholics, didn't matter who they were, or the Irish are unwelcome, you know. So there are a lot of historical pieces. So then you begin to just go down through history. Catholicism is viewed as a white religion. There are no black faces anywhere to be seen. Uh, Mm. They're rare and far between. And then when you've got religious orders that are solely set up for, because we were segregated as well, um, you know, there wasn't the, you know, Augustus Tolton, blessed Augustus Tolton Venerable, the first African-American priest ordained to the diocesan priesthood in this country had to go to France to study because no seminary Mm. would take him. So there are a lot of you know. So even now there are just few of us because of both historical circumstances and then decisions that the church made to not really work. And then you begin reaching out, and they're reaching out by appropriating mm-hmm. things that are either from Africa or things from uh, the Protestant culture that that aren't necessarily part of the Black Catholic experience of older Black Catholics who you know remember sitting in uh, the back of the church. And when they now get a chance to sit in the front of the church, they're, 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 they're no longer the, the, the old-time religion, if you will, that they were used to with hymns and Latin and things like that. People are playing drums and dressed in quinte cloth yeah. and things of that nature. Again, not yeah. that that's per se is bad, but it wasn't their Catholic experience. And so what they wanted to pass on maybe to their children actually no longer existed. So there has been so many – I think there have been so many missed opportunities. But honestly, if you ask me, Deacon, is it possible to, 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 to rectify that? And I would say no. I would say that the church is simply going to have to live with the fact that in this country uh the number of black Catholics is always going to be disproportionate to the number of black people percentage wise and we're just going to have to live with that not that That's we don't try to not that we don't try to evangelize, but we can't get on of a course. page to do that. Well, we can't get on a uh, we can't get on the same page to do that with the influx of of the whole Latino community and how we do that and a recognition i was Again, of, you know, you you talk Latino and you and I, you know, better than I, we're talking about, you know, basically anything from, you know, Uruguay and Paraguay, all the way up to to Belize. Well, (laughs) you you, you don't take all of those people and say, this is the way we're going to speak to you or the fact that you speak the same language. We're going to wait a minute. You know, there's some hostilities and tensions historically there in certain cultures and all the things that are there. Let's respect that. As we figure out how to respond to this. And so, you know, we're looking, we're looking for easy answers to a much more complex situation. And my final thought on this would be losing sight of the fact that when we were at least worshiping with one form of worship, we at least had something that actually did cut across all of those boundaries and actually elevated Mm. us and allowed us to say, okay, at least in this building, we're all one. It doesn't Mm. matter who you are. Uh, black, white, whatever. It didn't matter. This, you, everybody comes here. And now because we can allow the liturgy to be particularized, even there, you've got people kind of going to their own tables, you know?
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, well, that that's beautiful, Monsignor. I learned quite a bit just in that little exchange. By the way, I've already made the editorial decision. This is actually going to be two shows. <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to kind of break this up because I do have one other area that I want to touch sure, on. Please. One quick point though, on what you said, is that the Latino experience right now, I think, not to the same degree and certainly with different circumstances, but there's a similar uh, potentially missed opportunity that we're experiencing right now with the Latino community precisely because you have a generation of immigrants who've come in with all of their experiences culturally from a variety of different Latin American countries and beyond, to your point. And then you have a generation of Latino, second, third, fourth generation, Uh, you know, young people that is coming up that has that in their cultural background, but nevertheless doesn't identify with it or live with in any other way. And, and yet a lot of that liturgically and otherwise is oftentimes used as the language of ministry or the language of, of, of accompaniment. And it's, it's kind of, it's recognizable in some sense, but it's also not entirely satisfying to that, to that great community. And if you, if you look at youth again, I may be different in St. Louis, but, you know, across the church, the stat right now on under 18 Catholics is that 60% of them are Hispanic. Yeah. Under 18. So, so when you look at that and you look at, okay, well, are we somehow creating, you know, ministerial awareness of the fact that these young people are hundred percent American, but they're a hundred percent Latino and they're kind of growing up in this weird hyphen, right? Are are we are we using, you know, too simple or too dull of instruments like just let's translate everything or whatever that are not going to be effective and might actually lead to what sadly the data is also showing that the Latino population is the one that's leaving the church fastest, even yeah. though we're increasingly becoming more Latino. So I think we've got this like similar I know, I know it's not identical, but a similar a dynamic that could actually happen among our Latino brothers and sisters, especially the younger ones.
0: Well, and I would say to that point, and I think the similarity is precisely because in both ethnic groups, uh, there is a lack of representation at kind of the um, the level of making um, decisions on the larger scale for the nationally. And again, I'm not saying there need to be more back black bishops just because, or more Latino bishops just because, but then they would then bring it because sometimes. These perspectives, while their their hearts mean well, it's as offensive in Correct. some ways as if you were using racial epithets in a negative way. Uh, mm. y- you actually don't you actually think I only think this way because this is what only you know, or this you think this is the way that you should approach me because this is all you know about me. And I and I'm not judging your heart, but I, I gotta judge your actions and tell you this is offensive. Uh as yeah. so if you're wondering why am I still angry? Well, because you actually haven't corrected the problem, you've only created, right. uh, you've only made it worse, and then you've hidden behind. Well, I tried to do my best. Well, uh, and what do you do with that? So, yeah, I, I, again, I think the I think the particularities are different. I think both the larger issues and the results are actually the same. You know, for the black community, it's basically they're never going to become Catholic. For the Latino community, they are, but they're not going to remain that. Either way, the effect mm. is you have. A, a world that is becoming less white and more colored, if you will. Again, not to be offensive. Um, and the church is not able or equipped to use what is in her arsenal to actually respond to that.
1: Yeah, and that's that is the net net statistically too, Monsignor. The fact that the, that the church in the U.S. at least is every day becoming more Hispanic, but every day the church, on aggregate, is actually contracting. Correct. So what you end up with over time if you just map that trajectory out, is you get, in in our case in the U.S., a significantly disproportionately Latino church that's small. And I can't imagine anybody wanting that. Correct. You know, but that's, that's what the numbers indicate.
0: Yes, my friend. Okay. Oh, this has been fun. This is great. Can I do one more thing with you? You may, by all means, please.
1: All right. Just one more thing. And because among your many, um, uh, you know, designations, accolades, et cetera, you also were at one point the vicar of deacons, yes, for your diocese. I was, right? And, I was okay, and and this is something, and maybe some maybe folks listening to the show will be like, "Oh, come on, uh, I, I'm not a deacon, so you know maybe this doesn't matter." But I do think it ties in to what we were talking about earlier about um, the second the post-conciliar period, and it also ties in a bit to the conversation that we're having about youth. And we're also, and it also ties in in my mind to potentially ways that the church can respond to the unique needs that we're experiencing in our country right now. So here's my, here's the thesis that I have. Okay, so and and I, your perspective, as informed as it is, is going to be very valuable to me. So I about three weeks ago or four weeks ago, uh, Georgetown through the Kara the Institute or mm-hmm. the, basically the research arm of Georgetown. Mm-hmm released a update to their, um, you know, kind of tracker study on the diaconate. And they do it every year. And I, I don't know if you, you've read that, the, the latest one. Or, I have or, not. Or, or, okay. Well, one of the stats that just jumped off the page for me was the stats on um, demography, specifically age. And the, the study cited that 95% of active permanent deacons, 95%, and I'm and not talking about guys that are retired, active permanent deacons, 95% are over 50, 77 percent, 77 are over 60, and almost 40 are over 70. Mm. And, you know, that when you sort of compare it to the church's universal law that a man should not be ordained uh, a permanent deacon prior to 35, to me is like a significant gap. And I see this personally in my own life that when I talk to people about the fact that I'm a deacon— among their many comments, mostly in l a it's something like "What's a deacon
0: nice. <laughs> but, but
1: among their many comments is like, "Wow, you're really young and I honestly don't first of all i'm not i'm forty eight years old okay i'm 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 young maybe by some standards, but you know Rhodes scholars and you know i don't know some other cat but but not not in terms of of any other respect and I'm certainly not young in my industry that I work in every day in fact, I'm one of the old guys in my industry but um Nevertheless, you know, I, when people engage with me in church circles or without church circles, the notion that somehow I'm very young comes into play. And what I wonder is, is there something about the implementation of the permanent diaconate, which also happened as an as a output of the Second Vatican Council, the reinstitution of the permanent diaconate? Um, it, how do you view that sort of implementation vis-a-vis the stats that I just gave you? Because my thought would be, while I'm not suggesting every 35-year-old should become a permanent deacon— I would think that we would have less than one percent of we'd have more than one percent, which is what it what it is right now. And I think that men who are you know raising families and have active careers and are out in the world and are being the leaven and all this other stuff could be particularly helpful to us in a variety of different ways. And not necessarily only, and this is in no way meant to cast any aspersion to, to my, my brothers who are older and who are deacons and who are active or who are retired, but not only that kind of shade of the diaconate, to use that kind of terminology. Like, uh, h- how do you see what I've just presented?
0: That's a good, good question, because kind of by way of backdrop, when I became the vicar for the permanent diacon, I was very grateful for Cardinal Burke, Archbishop Burke at the time, making me the vicar. Um, in a way, practically speaking, helping me come to understand that community better. Oftentimes there's tensions between priests and deacons. Uh, I think I fed into some of that. So it was good for me to come to a greater appreciation of the, the, the diaconate in the archdiocese, particularly, but in general, one of the catch 22s, as you pointed out, you know, no man can be ordained to the primitive diaconate until he's 35 or older. Um, Is that there seems to have been, I think it may still be true, kind of an unspoken, um, criteria, and it was very clear for us here in the archdiocese, if you had young children, for example, um, who were grade school age or younger, you simply weren't considered as a candidate for the diaconate uh, in large measure because we didn't want to take you away from your family to do what needed to be done to prepare you for the diaconate. Um, so you then fall into the habit where, or the fall into the, the, the reality that most of the men you're choosing are going to be older because that means they've raised their kids and they've um, done their jobs, and so now they're either at the end of that twilight of that, or they've retired completely. Um, so I don't know how to reconcile that. The other thing that oftentimes we forget, and and the um, um, I forget the document from the council that reconstituted the diaconate. Um, the The initial the the initial um, kind of idea was that deacons permanent deacons were meant to be celibate. The married diacon the married Deaconate is um, more exception than rule, although in this country it's rule, not exception. Uh, and I think we still have the largest number of deacons in the we world,
1: About 20, uh, Which
0: also, which also is kind of incongruous because the deacon was meant to be in places where there were no other clerics, precisely to provide a clear clerical presence, which I think is valuable. So there are a lot of different things going on here. To your point, though, is would having younger deacons who then also would have more energy in industry be a valuable thing to the life of the church. I agree wholeheartedly. And again, just kind of as a side note, back to our earlier conversation about how uh, there can be some ossification. I am, I'm, I'm trying to find ways to involve a permanent deacon here and in the oratory and getting a little bit of pushback from people because their comment is, well, that's a, that's a post-Vatican II thing. Mm. I'm like, the man's ordained. Mm -hmm. That's all that matters. Uh, I get some of the other pieces you're concerned about, but for, because for us, especially we need a deacon for solemn high mass. So it's a of real course. practical thing. Of course. So that's a side point that, you know, even while I'm trying to, and again, I'm being, I'm, someone called me a liberal, which I just laughed. I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever. I mean, if, if that, if this is it. So to your point though, I, I think there, I, I definitely will say this much. I was at a conference in Orlando, Florida, maybe a decade ago when I was vicar on lay ministry, which I have Ooh. a problem with as a, theological construct Mm. because ministry and the ministerial uh, properly belongs to the ordained apostolic belongs to the lay faithful and the sacrament of lay ministry is confirmation. If you want to say anything. So I'm at this conference on the theology of lay ministry at the Episcopal level. I'm at a table of priests, deacons, permanent deacons, deacons and lay faithful. And they're talking about ways of empowering. And I leaned to one of the deacons and said, dude, you need to get in there. Mm. I said, because what they're, what they're, targeting for are things that you were actually ordained for. This is the reason yeah. why we ordained, this is why we constituted this. So I think part of this conversation has to be a greater appreciation of who the deacon actually is and his role and value and necessity in the life of the church. This was the insight of Paul VI, was the reconstitution of the threefold office by having a livable, visible, permanent diaconate Again, the fact that maybe implementation has not borne the fruit that we want should not deter us from finding ways to beautifully utilize the diaconate in the life of the church. And that then may go as we have that conversation, may allow us to have more specifically the conversation you're raising, and that is, could this be a means that would be – that allow us to send, if you will, a little army into addressing this particular issue in the life of the church?
1: Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. That's that there's definitely more there, but you've been super, super generous with your time on senior. So I want to, I want to get us on our way before we get to okay. our, our final segment, which is called wait, what little fun segment for you. Um, I did want to you know, tell the folks listening and you're doing a ton of stuff, but if there's a way to, you know, the best way to keep track of the things that you're doing, either, either projects or participate in the life of the different ministries that you, that you lead or are involved with, what would you recommend for them? How could they find that out?
0: I would say our I would say the the website for the oratory, which is wow. I don't know our website. Isn't that terrible? Because I never I I just it's actually there. St. LouisLatinmas.com. St. Louis
1: yeah. Yes. And they'll put terrible? all this in the show notes too.
0: That's okay. I appreciate that well. Yeah. Um and then I'm going to in light of actually the exhortation that you gave me and the notes in preparation was to post this on my social media as well, try to be more engaging in, uh, with my Facebook page as a way of at least linking information and letting people know some of the things that I'm doing. And same with Twitter as well. I have the accounts. I just need to be more diligent in doing that. So if you want to follow me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, um, that would be a good thing.
1: You haven't posted in a minute. So I'd be honored if, uh, if you'd break that,
0: uh, that, that with a little
1: post about this show. Yeah, break that I will fast. do
0: that. Yes, sir, I will.
1: Monsignor, what a great privilege it was to have you on the show. God bless you. Thank you for your priesthood. Thank you for all your great ministries. Thank you for being out there. I, for one, and I'm not alone, I know. I'm very happy that you're out there fighting the good fight. Um, and again, what a great privilege to, to be here with you today.
0: Thank you as well. No, the privilege of mine, this has been great. So awesome. Thank you. It was a great conversation. I would love to do it again. So
1: Well, we will. Monsignor, okay. are you ready then to end the show with <laughs> yeah, what? I am. Uh, all right, here we go. Okay, so, okay. So, so, Monsignor, this is a fill-in-the-blank question. Now, I know you're a fourth-degree Knight of Columbus, so I think okay. you might be the guy for this one. All right. Bless, blessed Michael McGivney, who among various noble characteristics, is regarded by historians as a naturally talented athlete. And this was proven while in seminary when he formed a blank with fellow seminarians.
0: Did he form a, 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 a football team of some sort?
1: He did form a team, but it wasn't football. Take a a second guess. Soccer, baseball.
0: Couldn't have been baseball. We were too Catholics were always too poor to do baseball because we didn't have any equipment. He actually I, you know, was a
1: pretty good baseball player from what I okay. read, so I had I no idea about it,
0: but I but, should uh, know that. okay. I will
1: I'm gonna give you a fifty percent on that one um, all right but <laughs> but because you did you did get team and you got the sort of athletic constitution part right All right. so uh, second question, multiple choice Monsignor, which of these is false about your home city of St. Louis? Which is false about okay. St. Louis? Is it a? at one point St. Louis was called Hashi, the Chickasaw word for bright sun. Is it B? St. Louis is the place where distinct right and left shoes for men and women were first created, or is it C? St. Louis was the first city in the country to introduce hip hop to a wide audience. Which of those is false? A. You are correct. You are correct.
0: <laughs> one, of,
1: one of the city's uh, early nicknames was Mound City. Mounds after the 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 no, City. Correct. That's right. Yeah, after so yeah, the number of Native why I knew American the- mounds. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, that's correct. We were as hilly. I was just in San Francisco, so I can say that since that's uh, we were just as hilly at one time as San Francisco, obviously, oh, wow. because of our, our weather pattern. We can't have streets that basically are a, you know, on whatever up. degree. Yeah, we can't yeah. we can't do that. We can't have ice on the streets and have to all down the hill. So that's been leveled over time. I didn't know about hip hop, hip hop but I knew the first yeah. one. So I didn't know that.
1: In East St. Louis, a local radio station made hip hop history when it became the first in the nation to play Sugar Hill Gang's now classic "Rappers Delight." Oh. Now, of course, there were there was hip hop songs before "Rappers Delight," but that's the first one that kind of broke the membrane and went pop culture. And they were the first; it was the first city that ever played that over the radio. So that introduced kind of hip hop to a wider audience. It wasn't born in St. Louis; obviously, it came more from the East Coast. But sure. but nevertheless, it did popularize, or I guess, helped to popularize it. And it's also true. That in St. Louis, the Brown Shoe Company, which is known today by a different name, uh, was founded in St. Louis in 1875. And it was the first in the industry to create different shoes for men and women and the right and left foot. So before that, I guess they were more like gloves or something. And you just, the left was just like the right, and there was no uh, contouring. But so both of those are, all, are also true. All right, so uh, you're doing great, Monsignor. Last question, and you're guaranteed to get this one right, because as folks who listen to this show know, there's always a time machine question, so here goes. Monsignor, you get to travel back in time to Rome in January of 1966. The Second Vatican Council has just concluded the month before, and a relatively new pope, Paul VI, which we've already talked about, is beginning to discern the implementation of the massive output of this pastoral council, which we've talked about quite a bit on the show. In a remarkable twist of fate, you are included in a private audience with the Pope where a group of churchmen from all over the world are sharing words of counsel with the Holy Father. At one point in the audience, the facilitator walks towards you and hands you a microphone to share your thoughts with the Holy Father. You grab the mic with some trepidation and speak your statement to the congregation gathered. What, Monsignor, do you say?
0: I tell them to not fiddle with the sacramental life of the church leave those things alone that would be all Cle- I would say
1: clear and direct <laughs> if
0: awesome. I had more time I would I would explain that but given the fact that we've been talking for a long time I know we're on a time constraint here it would be just yeah leave it alone because the fruit's not gonna necessarily be there
1: well I think that that clear and direct gets you I tabulate all your points I think you win um thank you I today. appreciate so, that. so you did you did very very well. <laughs> Again, my senior, blessings on you and your ministries. Thank you so much for uh, for stopping by. Great privilege to have you. And if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time to subscribe. Please share these episodes with anybody who can benefit from all the great um, the great wisdom that was shared on this podcast. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call.
0: God bless. Thank you.